Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the perennialist or the traditionalist school of thought in spirituality. My guest is the poet and writer Charles Upton. His first two books of poetry, Panic Grass in 1968 and Time Raid in 1969 were published by City Lights in San Francisco, known for publishing the works of the great beat poets. And you might say he was the youngest member of the beat generation, considering that he was a high school student at the time these books were published. He subsequently became engaged in metaphysics and the traditionalist movement and is author of many books, including Hammering Hot Iron, a sp spiritual critique of Robert Bly's Iron John, Folk Metaphysics, Mystical Meanings in Traditional Folk Songs and Spirituals, Cracks in the Great Wall, UFOs and Traditional Metaphysics, Knowings in the Arts of Metaphysics, Cosmology, and the Spiritual Path, The Science of the Greater Jihad, Essays in Principial Psychology, The System of the Antichrist, Truth and Falsehood in Postmodernism and the New Age, Vectors of the Counter-Initiation, The Course and Destiny of Inverted Spirituality, Dugan Against Dugan, A Traditionalist Critique of the Fourth Political Theory, and most recently, although we won't really be touching on this book today, but I hope to do so in a future interview, The Alien Disclosure Deception, The Metaphysics of Social Engineering. Charles lives in Lexington, Kentucky, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Charles. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, it's great to be here with you as well. This, it is, if we call this with, this is the way with is nowadays. With in, in virtual reality, or as my parapsychological friends sometimes like to say, non-local reality. It's non-local. Yeah. Okay. That that's that sounds better. Yeah. So. I think a good starting point might be the fact that you and I both had what I would regard as a good, solid friendship with a wonderful man, Houston Smith, when we each lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I think he had a big impact on both of us. Yes. I mean, Houston was, I always say, a gentleman and a scholar. If you want to, you know, that's an old phrase that used to be thrown around, but it certainly applied to him perfectly. And, you know, I mean, he uh, he summed up so much of all of the lore and information and, you know, visions of what all the other, quote, religions were, uh, you know, for that time and presented it in a beautiful and accessible way. You know, and uh, I keep saying w w when he passed on, he took his time with him, like 
few people, you know, you could say the Houston Smith era is now definitely over. <laughs> Why do you say that? Well, because things have become, he was a sunny personality and things have become darker, you know, and that's, um, it was really before it's, it's wh wh where you could collect the religions together. And this is still being done in places, you know, you could have the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu and everyone, you know, in, in one room and smiling at each other. And now, if that is still going on, it rings a little hollow because there's so much conflict between everything and everything now. So, and it's, it's, it's nice to still be able to do that when there's so much conflict. It's not, it's not useless, but it isn't the keynote of our time, if you will. Well, I am under the impression that since our time together, and in a way, you and I both came of age in California in the 1970s. Uh, so we have that in common. But I have a sense that our paths diverge somewhere along the way. And in, in particular, you are now strongly affiliated with the traditionalist school of spirituality. And Houston, I think, uh, bordered on that school, but I'm not sure he was ever a member of it. Well, he was he was a member at one point. You know, I mean, he like I call him. You know, you talk about serial monogamy. He was like, you know, uh, serial monotheism or something. You know, and there was a definite phase where that's what he was. And then, uh, you know, the last years I knew him, he was there and starting to move on to something else a bit. You know, so, but. Uh, well, certainly, uh, you know, he was considered by Sayyid Hussein Nasr to be, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, this is partly jocular, but like sort of the uh, the, the uh, Mukaddam for, for, for the, uh, uh, you know, west of the Mississippi region, you know, and, uh, and he, you know, we uh, certainly... Yeah, he he was he was a traditionalist uh, and 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 uh, a member of the um, initiate of the Church uh, of Schoen's Mariamia Tarika when we knew him. So, oh, okay, now you've introduced several terms, and it'll be useful to clarify these for our our viewers. Fritz of Schoen was this guy who, while he was alive, I guess he passed away in 1999, I think, and uh, he. Uh, he was sort of the, the head of the traditionalist school. I think most people would agree, or, or at least you say the Anglo-Swiss uh, branch of the traditionalist school. I mean, in the, for the English-speaking world and for some other parts of the world, and you know, he's from Switzerland himself. And so he was, you know, he was, and, and there were other branches. There were some branches who followed René Guénon and had not moved, you know, on from him, but were following his teachings exclusively, or were still around. And, and there were the people following Julius Evola, who was sort of the right wing, almost, almost fascist, um, you know, um, a writer of, of, of uh, associated with the traditionalist school. But uh, Fritjof Schoen was sort of the top guy in many people's minds while he was alive. So... And uh, the Maryamiya Tarika was his and is his Sufi order, which uh, used to be called the Maryamiya Shadili Tarika because it was uh, he, he got his initiation through Sheikh Ahmed al Alawi, who was uh, um, a great uh, Sufi 
master of North Africa of the uh, Alawiya order, which is a branch of the Shadili order. Uh, and um, he founded his own Sufi order, which which was a, a bit a bit off off the, the 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 central tradition of Sufism. He was doing his own thing to a degree. It was some very some some very interesting and some a little bit extreme things that he was doing. But you know, um, he put us through our paces. You know, put it that way. So I was never initiate of that order, but my wife actually was. I see. But you do consider yourself a Sufi these days. Well, yes, you know, if I consider myself anything, I, you know, I'm like I say, I'm, I'm bet between shakes at this point, you know, because uh, being a shake at a time like this, being a recognized spiritual teacher is a rather difficult position to maintain without, you know, getting into various forms of difficulty. Well, to my understanding, the traditionalist school basically, it's non-denominational in the sense that it honors the various traditions, but it also suggests that a, a true spiritual path must involve one of the recognized spiritual traditions, whether it's Islam or Buddhism or uh, Christianity. I'm not sure if uh, Judaism counts. Uh, there was one, um, well, there, there was someone who came out of Judaism. I believe he converted to Islam. But uh, uh, one of the best writers on Kabbalah was um, Leo Shia, who wrote The Universal Meaning of the uh, uh, Kabbalah. And he was uh, certainly of the traditionalist school. So, yeah, your characterization, characterization is correct. Um, you know, un understanding that, that all of the major traditions have an esoteric element which you know these elements are are not identical, but they are equivalent, and and they're pointing closer and closer to the same reality from their different standpoints. But uh, you know, just just like if you're going to climb a mountain, you can't climb by two routes at the same time. <laughs> you know, if you try, you're gonna your legs are gonna be very far apart. And it's gonna be hard to walk. You know, so you have to go up one, and uh, and that's uh, I mean I. I Ram Das, uh, Richard Alpert, almost said the same thing. You know, he he was tending in that direction. Well, we we've tried everything under the sun, but now let's find a path and stick with it. And so, for that reason, the you know, what some sociologists would call the the new religions are less appealing because the path is less well trodden. Well, it's less well trodden, and there's a question. I mean, I'm not I'm not going to turn around and say that, you know the Baha'i are you know, n not a real religion because it's none of my business. Someone may find God through the Baha'i and more power to them. But um, the new religions, I mean, they don't seem to have the breadth, you know, perhaps even initially that that, that the great revelations have. You know, they're, 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 there's a certain very important insight that comes to one person or a group of people and they you know, they form a practice and, and, a, and a doctrine around it. And this is good up to a point, but there's something larger and more full and more complete and more grounded in, in, the, the, uh, in the major revelations. Um, that's one way of saying it. The other, way of, the other thing you have to say is, though, that, that the traditions are not in good shape now. You know, I mean, you'll see 
you see them all weakening and, and losing their definition. So uh, in times like this, to stay with a traditionalist standpoint and just say, you know, I'm, I'm going to stay with one, one of the major revelations, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a bet. You're making a bet that this is going to and, and, and you actually you can't do this and do the opposite at the same time. So you don't know what it would have been if you've gone a different way. But it, it has difficulties now that it didn't used to have because these uh, religions used to be within the matrix of a complete religious civilization that, that would inform them. And, you know, like, like I say, with with uh, Sufism, for example, I mean, in 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 a golden age of Islam, where, where and whenever you want to say that it was, you had so many things going on. You had the philosophers were doing philosophy and the alchemists were doing alchemy and the religious scholars were doing, you know, fiqh and, um, you know, studying sharia and and, you know, the artists were doing art and all this was going on. And then uh, so when someone came to the door of of the Sufi master uh, it was a good bet that he or she really wanted to find God directly, and, you know, and, and get uh, do as intensive spiritual practice as was available in Islam. Uh, but now when people go to the Sufi master or to any master, oh, you know, it's uh, who knows what they're looking for, because um, we don't have an integral civilization and, and our lives are disordered. You know, and people may be looking for, you know, not just a spiritual master, that too, but also a, psych a psychiatrist, you know, someone to, you know, help them with their craziness or, 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 a, or a father figure or a, or a lover or somebody who will, you know, help help with financial dealings. You know, you'll, you'll have a nice group you can schmooze with, you know, for business purposes. And God knows why people do it, because um you know, Sufi orders have had to sort of, you know, as, as Islamic civilization, as all civilizations have shrunk, they've sort of tried to take on all the roles that, that were being abandoned or, or lost, you know, in other parts of the, the civilization. So that that's a, a, a universal problem with traditional religions at this point. I think it would be useful for our viewers to have a sense of how you came of age as probably the very youngest of the Beat Generation poets. Your uh, work was published by Lawrence Ferlinghetti in City Like Books in San Francisco back in the late 1960s. Well, let's see. <laughs> Once upon a time. <laughs> Once upon a time, I was going to Catholic high school in Marin, Marin County, California, Marin Catholic High School. And my friend Bill Trumbly phoned me up and said, uh, I'm taking this poetry little workshop thing at, at College of Marin, but I'm too hungover to go. So why don't you go in my place? So what I did is I went in his place and uh, this was a tiny little um you know, some sort of poetry workshop, which was run by Beat Generation poet Lou Welch. And there was only, at that day, there was only him and me and Sister Mary Norbert Kutter, who was a Dominican nun at that point and also a poet. And uh, that's, the, there was Lou Welch. And that, and basically, that's how I got close to the Beat Generation. Um, you know, I, I, I uh, 
what he did was very interesting. He didn't want to talk to us about poetry. He wanted to teach us perception exercises, which, you know, which is, well, okay, whatever, you know, this is free. <laughs> I might as well go along with it. And uh, he said, you know, that there was a grove of redwoods, a little stand of redwoods right there. And he, and he, and he said, okay, look at those redwood trees. Now imagine that the redwood trunks are empty spaces and that the spaces between the, the trunks are solid. Just, you know, flip, the, flip, flip your perception like that. And I looked at it and I said, oh, yeah, I can sort of see that, you know. And I thought, I thought well, that's interesting, whatever. It's amazing what that, what that became in later years. You know, that, that really, uh, there was a time when I was meditating in Gerstle Park in, in San Rafael, California, with, with my eyes open, which I used to. And, and I was another, there was another redwood grove there, and I was meditating there. And then, then that really happened. And the spaces between the redwood trees, you know, the redwood trees became empty and the spaces between them became birch trees. And suddenly, well, now I'm in a birch forest. And it was it was a birch forest, just as clear as a bell, you know, and it's, well, that's interesting. <laughs> you know? And so, uh, you know, something was coming out of that guy, you know. But anyway, he introduced me to he just, you know. See, the, the Beat Generation was getting their second wind, and they were they were getting their first real mass audience of their own kind of people that they could talk to. You know, before they were a phenomenon that, you know, Edward R. Murrow or someone says, there are these people called Beatniks. What are they? What are they doing? You know, oh, whatever. But, uh, but the hippies really, you know, came into being partly because of what the Beats were doing. And so... They had a chance to speak, you know, to, to, to sort of give their manifesto and their view of reality to a younger generation. So he was, you know, introducing me around. He introduced me to who all was it? Lawrence Ferlinghetti, of course, and um, Robert Duncan and Robert Creeley and Philip Whalen and Gary Snyder and a whole bunch of people, you know, and, and, and any time, you know, we, we'd go over to Bolinas and see the Bolinas poets and this. And um, and it's just it was very interesting. I mean, I, I uh, because right after that little class, I showed him some of my stuff and he, and he and he wrote me back a letter. and He says, you can be a poet if you want to. I said, well, I guess I do. OK, you know, all right. And, you know, he, he set me up with a big reading at Glide Memorial Church where I read my poem Panic Grass, which was sort of my version of. A combination of, of Kerouac and, and Neil Casty driving across the USA and long-lined, you know, high-energy poetry like Howl. And I put it all together, and it was it was a creditable poem. It came from a trip I'd taken around the US with a friend of mine in uh, 1967. And the next year, you know, I wrote it that that winter, and, and uh, then I pre presented it. And I and I read it a Glide Memorial Church with, you know, high energy declamatory reading. And Ferlinghetti came up afterwards and says, you know, I want to publish that poem. You know, you know, it's now your your name will be in lights and all of this and all of this, which was interesting. But I didn't go with it. I just I said, OK, that's interesting. Great. I'm glad that happened. OK, cool. But I don't know. Do I have anything else to say? Will I ever write another poem? Who am I to run around with these guys? And I just sort of, I never did a public reading of Panic Grass after that night. So, so that was 
one of the many worlds that I have been on the edge of. I mean, I've been on the edge of so many worlds, just, you know, the fly on the wall. Um, and so I, I never became entirely identified with one of them so I could pass from one to the other. And I see people, you know, somebody becomes a poet and now 45 years later, they're still in North Beach and they're still a poet and that's what they are. And I just didn't want to do that. You know, I said there was there's more there's more two things than that, you know, so. So. Well, coming of age in the 60s and 70s in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, as you mentioned, it was the summer of love. It was the time of the hippies. Uh, LSD was uh, plentiful at, at the time. And undoubtedly, you were exposed to that as I was at that time. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes. And that, 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 was, that went along with the Beat Generation territory as well, because they were they were right in the middle of that as well. And, you know, I was there with the human bee, first human bee in, in Golden Gate Park, where Timothy Leary was saying, turn on, tune in, drop out, drop out of your schools, drop out of your sororities, drop out, of, you know, and he was going, and I just remember, <laughs> he was really preaching to the choir, everybody was so stoned, and said, sure, Tim, whatever, <laughs> yeah, right, I think we've already heard this one, you know. And uh, I remember, you know, the, the the Hell's Angels standing on top of the generator truck guarding, you know. And, you know, who was on that stage? Lou, Lou Welch was there. Allen Ginsberg was there. Gary Snyder was there. Dizzy Gillespie was there with his, you know, trumpet, you know, the, the bent up trumpet thing, you know. And um, so, but, you know, made a bunch of scenes. Yes. And LSD, well, um what a thing. And you just wonder what that ever did to you, you know, because you get very high, apparently very high insights, very high realizations. And yet, and yet, you know, it was a kind of a, a, rape, a rape of the psyche by some chemical. And God knows what that really did, you know. And I'm just wondering, uh, um, if, if you really have an experience of, let us say, God or unitary being or the clear light of the void or whatever from taking a chemical, maybe somewhere that, you know, that, that implants in you a deeply materialistic assumption, you know, well, it all came from a, from a, from a chemical. Maybe it's all chemical. Maybe it's all brain chemistry, you know, and it, it's a way, even if you don't believe that, you know, some, some idea you hold to, it's, it seems to have been demonstrated pretty clearly by taking a pill, you know. So, so there, there were a lot of downsides to it, which we did not understand and may never understand, because society, let's face it, started to really come apart at that point. And understandably, because uh, the mindset of the 50s was a terrible paralysis. It was a strange, you know, something to do with, PTSD after World War II, we won the war, you know, we, we're on top, we're, we're, we're the most powerful nation on, the, on earth, we're all rich. On the other hand, nuclear weapons, you know, and, and that just, that did something to people. People froze in a way I have never seen before or since. You know, just looking what I know from movies, you know, look, look at movies in the 30s, people were, you know, a, a lot more uh, sure of themselves and a lot hipper than they were in the 50s. You know, and uh, so 
so, something had to be, you know, that there had to be compensation for that strange state. And that's what the Beats came up with. And um, so good. I'm glad they did. But um, things started to unravel at that point. Because things always do. Things grow and then they die. And that's when I always say, you know, the, the, the peak of, of the U.S., you know, expansion or the expansion of Western civilization. Because weren't, weren't the hippies the spearhead of Western civilization? Onward to Vietnam. Uh-oh. Uh, I didn't want to do that. And then, you know, I would say, well, when, it's when Jimi Hendrix died, what, when was that? 1969 or something in 70. And that was the end. That was when that was the peak. And it's been downhill ever since. Well, who knows? It's a counterculture perspective on Western civilization. Well, I am under the impression that, in, in a sense, you became very disenchanted with the counterculture and sought, let's say, refuge in the traditionalist movement. Yeah, yeah, this happened. I mean, um, let's see. At one point um, in the early 80s, I mean, I was, I was doing whatever seemed to be coming out of the counterculture until then. And then I, I was, uh, my wife and I became the elders of a um, small Presbyterian church in San Rafael. And we were brought in by the um, the lady minister who, who's, who wanted to pack, pack the session, which is the governing uh, uh, body of the church, in order to have the church vote to in, in become involved in the sanctuary movement for Central American refugees. And so, you know, we came in and, and uh, so, so, you know, we were insurgents, but we were nice insurgents. People didn't hate us. A few people left in disgust, but it didn't really split the congregation, which means that there's a lot of very strange people ended up being doing something very radical, you know, very straight yet eccentric kind of people. There was there was one um, couple that I said were the were the real Fred and Ethel Mertz. You know, they were old vaudeville people, you know, going to a Presbyterian church. It's, it was very strange. So we did, you know, and, and we were we wanted to believe that the left was the good guys. Right. And then we found out the left is just a bunch of politicos who, who are also um, you know, you, you, you have the death squads, the Salvador death squads. Then you have the left that's also doing some pretty bad stuff. And, and, and they were sort of lying to us. And they thought that they thought we were idiots. You know, there's little cadre people from El Salvador here in San Francisco Bay Area. They thought we were idiots who, uh, who would believe anything they said. And I remember, you know, we had some event. They said, communists oh no there are no communists in el salvador and i thought oh yeah okay you know and i just saw well this is sort of as far as we can go in this direction you know and uh and um then after that um we decided because it sort of fell apart that church in a rather sad way which i won't Belabor, belabor you with, but then we said, well, let's do the new age, you know, let's, I mean, let's see what, because it came out of the counterculture, maybe there's something interesting is going on there, so like two, about two years, uh, my wife and I were going through, we were with Global Family, I don't know if they still exist, and, and we're doing citizen diplomacy with the Soviet Union, and, you know, we're doing international peace prayer days, 
and ended up with harmonic convergence. And, you know, I, I actually led, my wife and I led a, a retreat for harmonic convergence on Mount Tamalpais. Wow, you know, that's the new age. And uh, so I was doing that, and I solicited, wait a minute, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. You know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just opening, you know, we're do, doing, you know, lucid dream work and this and, 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 and you know, ad hoc sh shamanism and weird rituals we invented. And what the hell is this? You know, so I said, I don't know what I'm doing. So I just said, OK, let's just let's just cool it here. And then when I said cool it, what appeared was the Nematulahi Sufi order from Iran uh, under Dr. Javad Nurbaksh. Um, and uh, actually, my, my, my wife converted, converted to Islam. She says, one day says, hey, I'm going to become a Muslim. I said, OK, <laughs> whatever. And so I sort of followed her. And then she she didn't stay there very long. She moved on. But she she she, you know, was a Muslim long enough to make me a Muslim. And then she went on and became a Christian again from of a more, you know, a traditional uh, strife of Christianity. So I was there for 20 years and it was it was. You know, there were imperfections, there were, you know, uh, the things that you get in a spiritual group, which you don't think are quite kosher and, and don't seem to be, you know, uh, but so what? Something was definitely going on because I went in there and I'd been probably at this point a pretty serious alcoholic for about 15 years. And I went in there and I never took another drink. I went, oh, you know, it's against the rules to drink if you're a Muslim. So cool. So I quit just like that. And it's not like the, the, the cravings disappeared. The cravings would come and then they would go and then they would come back and they would go for years and years. But I never, never took another drink. So something was going on. And I was during that period, I was recollecting myself because I because I blasted myself in so many different directions. I said I will take every drug once. And uh, I, I didn't do DMT and ayahuasca, but I did everything else. And um and, you know, trying kundalini yoga, you know, I mean, Yogi Bhajan, who is the teacher of kundalini yoga, a Sikh teacher, and he would just come and he just came and says, hippies, do you want to get high without drugs? Try breath of fire and you'll see what happens. You know, And something, it, you know, it blew, blew my subtle nervous system to the four winds and you know it took me several years to get back into my body on any stable you know ongoing way and it was just it was another ex excess you know so i just i just sat there for 20 years at the namatulahi uh hanukkah in san francisco and just didn't say a word hardly you know i just said i'm just gonna sit here and say the name of god and and collect all the fra fugitive fragments of myself so it was very good for that I might have rubbed shoulders with you at the Kundalini Yoga Ashram in San Rif Anselmo. Uh, I practiced Yogi Bhajan's Kundalini Yoga for several years. I wasn't at the ashram. He came by once and there was some place, I forget what it was, and a bunch of them were doing, you know, uh, Kundalini Yoga exercises. And I sat down with him and did some. And, and one time Yogi, a couple, two or three times, right? And one time Yogi Bhajan came by. So I looked at him and I just said, um, I said, 
you're really experienced, you know, because I was thinking of a song, you know, uh, are you really experienced? Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix, or, or have you ever been experienced? You know, and I said, you're really experienced. I remember he said one thing. He says, in, in, well, we're coming from the Piscean Age to the Aquarian Age. In the Piscean Age, you know, it's it's Jupiter. Jupiter is, is, is uh, uh, you know, is generous and, 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 you know, and helpful. And, and Jupiter says, you know, uh, you know, learn, learn, you know, spirituality and, you know, become more spiritual and, and, and uh, wonderful rewards will be yours. You will get all these wonderful things. But now we're moving into the Aquarian age ruled by Saturn. And Saturn says, you better learn your spirituality, my friend, or else, you know. And that I think that was in, in very vague general terms. I think that was very accurate, you know. I mean, it's, you know, because this is not the time where we can try all sorts of things and get all sorts of different interesting inputs, you know, that don't seem to have any center. But boy, aren't they entertaining? That's just not this time. You know, we, we, we got to get it right now, you know, or there will, will be serious consequences. But Kundalini Yoga, I mean, I, you know, I practiced it in the worst possible way with, with you know, not doing nothing to 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 purify or simplify my habits, you know, of, of self-indulgence of one kind or another, and without ongoing, um, you know, without a trainer much, you know, who, who could, like, what, what happens when, when the energy gets weird and it goes like this and did that, and, you know, and hopefully they knew the technical parts of it enough to say, all you need to do is this, or now it's time to do more of that, and I did not have that kind of guidance. And so um, all I could do was was go for the extreme, raise the Kundalini, you know, get it to the Sahasrara and see what happens, you know, and uh, it's very, you know, it, it, it's, it's as if I burned a lot of karma because it, 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 it brought up a lot of, of unconscious um, attachments and, you know, karmic residues or whatever that, I never may, may have never encountered in this life if I hadn't done something so radical, but it was extremely disorienting and very painful sometimes. So, so you found in Sufism something that seemed like a a better path for you. Well, it was <clears throat> what was what was good is 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 uh, obedience. You know what they say. Uh, that's one of the most important things in Western monasticism, you know, you poverty, chastity, and obedience. Thomas Merton said about those three vows of, of, of any Western monk virtually is, uh, uh, he says, poverty, that's a cinch, you know, chastity, well, that gets, it takes some getting used to. <laughs> he says, obedience, that's the kicker, you know, because, you know, he, he had, uh, he had he had a, a series of of uh, abbots who were prob were not geniuses. He was a genius. The abbots were just regular monks, you know, and it was hard for a guy that smart and that perceptive to obey somebody that that he thought, well, this guy, you know, I, I can ring run rings around this guy when it comes to intelligence. Why am I obeying him? Well, because obedience dis, you know, it it. Um, it disconnects your self-will. Sometimes that's the only way to do it. Why do we do it? 
Why am I supposed to do this? Is this going to work? No, you're supposed to do it because I say so and because this is the rule, okay? And just that, that practice is, is very good if you need to collect yourself, especially if you've been a, a very freelance spiritual type who's tried everything and thought, you know, he could invent his own religion in, in, over any given weekend, you know, if, if he, you know, and, and that's, so it, that was very good for me. It was it had downsides, but so does everything. Well, one of the things I've noticed as I've gone through your many books is that there is a, a, a theme, and, and that theme is to be quite critical of various aspects of popular culture, whether it's the, the men's movement or the uh, fascination people have with UFOs or... Or, or the New Age or... Or in my next book is 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 going to uh, treat the traditionalists to to that kind of, you know, gently if I can do it, you know, gentle critique because they they, they are a wonderful course to take without doubt, and yet and yet well okay, what's interesting is did you did you ever read um, a, a vision by uh, William Butler Yeats? Yes. Okay, you know those what what are there twenty. 22 phases, or how many phases are there? I forget. I, I don't recall either. No, there are 28, 28 phases of, of, of this big cycle in which everything exists, you know. And, and it's, it, oh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a vision of history. It's a vision of eschatology, life after, you know, after, you know, after death. It's, and, and one of the things is, is, is character types. And so if you look at uh, when my under what phase of the moon I was born, I am a phase 11, which is called the uh, the consumer, the pyre builder. And it says, um, let's see if I can remember this, the, 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 the consumer, uh, he, he, he's involved with a, a challenge and a critique of 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 the ideas, you know, of 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 his of his kin, basically, of his, you know, and it says this critique is forced upon him almost to the breaking of his heart, and it said no no character without the stroke of fate so divides itself in two, you know, it's it's like. I just had to, I had to, I had to do it. I had to go after, I said, that's not right. That's not cl clear enough that, that, that could create a problem, you know? And, and I just, I just, I, I mean, it's amazing. I, I found in very general terms, astrology to be more or less true, but nothing has been so true for me as, as, as that weird channeled system that came you know, to WBH through his wife as the medium. It was so strange. I mean, where the hell did that? It's like, and and and, you know, and of course I would criticize the uh, the order of the Golden Dawn. You know, I mean, I mean, but 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 look, if something came through them anyway, you know, or came through him, and it was it was it was true, you know. So so yeah, I, I that's that's what I've had to do. That's what I've had to do. And um, and who else? Who was supposed to be? Oh, uh, Spinoza. I don't know Spinoza well enough. But Spinoza was supposed to be phase eleven. But the one that comes to mind 
which uh, isn't in Yeats's list, was a, a Savonarola, you know, the bonfire of the vanities, right? And that's that's very much uh, what my writing is. As you write, there's, that's that's a keynote in my writing. A lot of your critique is done from the perspective of the traditionalist school, and I think one aspect of, of that school, and I think it's fair to say it's pretty much found in all the major religions, is the idea of the satanic or the diabolic being a force in uh, history, a, wor a force in this world. I would say at this point, who can deny it? But if you wish to deny it, go ahead. But I mean, really, I think that's becoming clearer all the time. I was just a big satan a Satanist convention in someplace in Arizona, I forget where, and where they were, you know, t teaching how to start Satan clubs in, in your your kids' school, you know, Satanism for children and this and this. And of course, they'll say, well, Satan isn't as bad as he was portrayed. So, you know, are we, are evil, what's evil? Or, or he isn't that evil. Or, you know, he's your friend. You know, he's, he's, he's against, uh, you know, the Puritanism that, that, that limits your, your uh, potential. Whatever. I don't know how he's being presented. But anybody who's looked into the Satanist world knows that it's, it's a lot worse than that. You know? And a as I recall from a previous conversation that we had, you've, you felt that there's no area of society that hasn't been corrupted by this force. Uh, yeah, I think that's I think we are at the point of, you know, truly the latter days, the, the last days of the Kali Yuga. Here we are. It's, it's not that, that, that every individual or, or every institution has necessarily been corrupted, but that influence is there as a threat, if not as a, as a realized damage everywhere, absolutely everywhere. It would be hard to deny that that's a, a very good posture to uh, criticize uh, various uh, social movements from, because uh, they all have their weaknesses. Their weaknesses. and. Uh, you know, I mean, a social movement is, is what do I say? Po politics is the art of the ephemeral, you know? I mean, uh, it, it's possible to make a real political commitment to something, particularly around an issue, rather than whatever the Democrats say or whatever the Republicans say is right, you know? And you can, that, that, that's proving itself to be very shaky ground these days. But there are certain issues, you know? Plant more trees, for example. That's a good one, you know. And it's possible to make a real commitment, and that 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 means something in these times. It's not like, you know, you can't make a political commitment. And certainly, what I did from 2013 to 2018, I guess, 2019 was uh, the Covenants Initiative, which um, was certainly, you know, a, a peace movement with a political aspect to it. So, so, and that was worth doing. But it was interesting. I found one that was coming directly out of tradition, out of one of the, the, the major religions. And, you know, quickly to say the covenants of the prophet Muhammad were made with different religious groups of his time. And in, in his place and time, the religious groups and the, and the, uh, 
and there wasn't there wasn't civil society like we have now. The the you know you had, you had a a village over there that was surrounding a monastery, and 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 so 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 the abbot of the monastery was more or less the mayor of the village, you know, so to speak, and and that that's the way society was organized. And so, in, in attempting to to make a federation of different peoples of the book, which is what he was doing, and this is manifested in his constitution of Medina, um, he would go to these uh, different uh, different communities and make treaties with them called covenants. And they would say, you know, um, if, if you will pledge not to be at war with Islam, we will pledge to, to, to you know, to not only leave you alone, but, 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 but to help you, you know, if, if your buildings become damaged, you know, the Muslims should repair them and, you know, we, we will we will have a federation because these were people, people in that place and time were living on the edges of big empires, the Byzantine Empire, Persian Empire. And there were a lot of little groups who were not looked at, for, say, from the Byzantine standpoint. They were Christian groups, but they might have been looked at as heretical or suspect or, you know, in any case, they weren't the, the real Christians. And, and so they were heavily taxed. And 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 so. uh Islam could make could come to them with a better deal, you know. So it's interesting that they, uh, representatives of the Prophet would go to these uh, groups and say, "Well, let's make a covenant, but let's just keep it under wraps. And maybe the time will come when you will see Muslim armies at your door. So bring out the covenant and show that you know uh, that, that the Prophet has granted your protection. But but when the Inspector General or whatever it is from the Byzantine Empire comes by." You better keep it under wraps, you know. So it, it was it was a very smart kind of diplomacy that that, that was being done because um, you know we, we we can say how, how did how did the Muslim armies expand so fast into such a vast area? Well, there was a lot of groundwork being laid, uh, and that, that's one of the ways it was being done. So so anyway, these my view and and. and um, my partner in this was Dr. John Andrew Morrow, who actually was our leader and still is. And uh, what he did is, is he, he brought these documents forward and um, saved them from obscurity, saved them from uh, scholarly obscurity. They were almost being forgotten. You know, what are these? These are some old documents that don't count anymore. Or those, those, are, those groups no longer exist. Or this was the, uh, the basis actually of the, um, policy of the Ottoman Empire, official policy uh, having to do with um, uh, treatment of, um, of of religious minorities. And but when the the Ottoman Empire fell, it looked like well, this is just old bureaucratic documents of some empire that doesn't exist anymore. And so people start to forget them. But I had the, you know, Dr. Morrow did amazing scholarly work, traveled the world, did it, you know, went to libraries. I mean, you, you couldn't believe, you know, some of these and, and some of our colleagues did this as well, you know, going to uh, ancient monasteries in the Near East and, and, and saying, we, we, we think you probably have a covenant, you know, and finding these things. It was an amazing job, and um, so he, he he was doing that. But but basically, I came forward and I said, "Look," uh, and, and I made a big pitch to to the the, the publisher of Angelico 
I guess it's Angelico Press that finally published his book, which is called The Covenants of the Prophet Muhammad with the Christians of the World. And I made a big pitch to them and I said, look, um, we, we, we've got to do this book. And I was also making a picture to Dr. Morrow at the same time. I got to do this book and it's got to be both scholarly and political. You know, it can't we can't be one or the other, because if it had been just a scholarly thing, it would have been one of these books that that, that for seventy five or hundred bucks, you can buy one copy and, and for the library and that's it. And it would have sold, you know, 100 copies to sitting in libraries and no one would ever read. But I said, we got to make a movement out of this because ISIS was coming up and 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 these uh, documents were saying flat out in the words of the prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, which Dr. Moore approved with incredible scholarship that these came directly from, from, you know, originals that were composed by him, you know, the, the paper trail, you know, and uh, these documents were saying anyone who does what ISIS does will earn the curse of Allah and his prophet, you know, and it, it was an incredible time for these things to come forward. And actually ISIS helped, helped our movement because if there hadn't been an ISIS, people wouldn't have understood the need for these documents. So as we brought them forward, people said, well, this is what we need. Well, you know, and, and it was, it was a, uh, basically a, uh, an interfaith initiative and a, a, a sense of, of um, what you say, social justice and, um, you know, human rights that was coming directly out of Islam itself. It wasn't coming from some Western ideology that was pasted onto Islam, which is always a very, uh, you know, uneasy uh, marriage. You know, it, it didn't go back to the French Revolution. It went back to the Prophet Muhammad. And so that's just what was needed then. So so this is like political, but it's it, I was able to put together, a, a, a you know, a, a political effort with traditionalism, with something that was coming directly out of because the, the Prophet Muhammad said these documents were inspired directly by Allah. So I said, all right, let's see what happens if if we uh, if we do something that is entirely traditional and yet entirely political and yet not fundamentalist, you know, and so we did it, you know, it's still going on. We don't know because people took it away. We were only two people, you know, and a few, you know, uh, colleagues and, and, and allies would appear from time to time. And so, you know, uh, a lot of people took it away and made it their own, which is, you know, because we don't want to sit here and, and try to manage some movement that we don't have, you know, give us a little funding first. Maybe we'll do that. But we did it almost without funding. So and it became an international movement. The final, you know, proof of it was that um, the Christian woman Asia Bibi in Pakistan, like seven, or eight, or nine years ago, was um, she? She had said, you know, uh, I get the idea. I, 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 I see I see this is probably isn't the way it happened, but this, this is the legend I'm going to invent. You know, she's there at, at, at the river with the other women, you know, uh, you know, uh, washing the clothes and and, and they, they diss her. You know, the other women say Christian girl, you know, who's this? You know, and she said she said something apparently like, well, um, you know, what did your what did your prophet ever do? My, you know, you know, uh, uh, 
my leader was the son of God and uh, something like, you know, just a, a little tiff. But this little tiff became she was arrested and um, kept in prison for seven years under threat of execution for blasphemy. And finally, it got to the Pakistan Supreme Court who, who ruled on it. And when they ruled on it, they um, cited uh, Dr. Morrow's book and the documents that he brought forward as one of their reasons for acquitting her. So she was acquitted and she was spirited out of um, Pakistan before before the, the mob of fundamentalist, you know, Salafi Wahhabis came and got her, you know, and I think she's in Canada now. So, so in other words, you know, if, if, if you can help say one person, I mean, what it says in the Quran, you know, is, is, uh, you know, he, he, he was killed one person as if he'd killed the whole human race. He was saved one person as if he'd saved the whole human race. And so that's, you know, so I won't say you can't do politics, <laughs> but I wanted to have it on a real basis, you know, on a real spiritual basis. So. Would you say that the traditionalist movement, as you see it and as you represent it, is quite distinct, therefore, from the fundamentalist movements in these various religions? The fundamentalists hate the traditionalists. I mean, because the traditionalists will accept um, other religions than Islam. I mean, I'm talking about the, the, the fundamentalists of Islam, but they're also fundamentalists, of course, in every religion. But um, you know, we'll accept other religions than Islam as equally valid and, and, and as revelations of God. So, oh, yeah, the, the, really tradition and, and, and conservatism or tradition and reactionary uh, tendencies or, or tradition and fundamentalism are, are, you know, poles apart in terms of the traditionalist school per se. Now, the, the, the traditional school is conservative in a lot of ways. But it's also, uh, if you look at Fritjof Schoen, it's, 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 it's a little bit wild and crazy in certain ways. Um, but um, it's, it's, it's a different perspective. It's, it's not conservatism. But it is understanding that, that the, you know, ideally or in their essence, the, the, the major revelations and the major religions that come from the revelations are are sort of in a higher order than any other conception of wisdom that the human race has ever come up with. That's what I think. I think that's generally true. The only problem is sometimes traditionalists will, will like to think that that's the way the religions always have been and always will be and are now. They're looking at a, at, at a, at a ideal essence, not a false ideal essence, but something that, that as soon as it, 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 you look at, at the religions socio-historically, it's going to have many, many exceptions to that high you know, vision of what, what the religion is. And yet it's worth having that high vision. Well, that's been a very elegant presentation, Charles. I uh, really appreciate having this time with you today. I know because of uh, the fact that you've written some 20 books that we've just scratched the surface. I hope that we uh, have more conversations in the future. I'm very interested in having a separate conversation with you just on your analysis of the uh, UFO rage that, that's going on now. 
you know, I'm warmed up to do that. I've been basically on the podcast circuit about that one. And certainly, you know, that's that's on the front burner in my life right now. So. So I, I th- thought it was very important before we get into that topic that the viewers of the New Thinking Aloud channel had a sense of your background, because that that's really where you're coming from in terms of all of these other critiques that you've made. Yeah, I think I think we we pretty well covered it, you know, and and uh, I just, um, you know, and I, I would like to add that. Probably if I hadn't been a Catholic in a more or less pre-Vatican II church and gone through Catholic school and Catholic high school, that's my formal education, ended with Catholic high school. In Catholic high school, I mean, at least you get an idea of what a Catholic education, what a, a classical education is. And you get an idea of what metaphysics is. You don't get really get taught metaphysics, but you know it's there. And you know there's a classical education. You know you've heard of Pindar, for example. You know what I mean. And you get this in, in high school, and um, and it was very interesting because the Catholic Church, while it was intact, which it is, it is no longer, uh, had a completely unified vision which included every aspect of life. You know, and people don't get that now. And I saw that, and as that started to fall apart. Strangely enough, LSD came in at that very moment. You know, there was Second Vatican Council LSD like that. So like LSD was a great booby prize in my life for the loss of the Catholic Church, which I wouldn't have stayed. Either people stayed with it. I couldn't stay with it. You know, I saw the priests they were teaching me didn't really believe they had no faith. So I wanted to go. I had to go elsewhere. Well, Charles, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. I feel like even though we have very different outlooks on life, there's a certain kinship uh, from probably from our years living together in the same little town as San Rafael. Yeah, San Rafael. Old San Rafael. Yeah. I mean, a mission, a mission town, you know, you, 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 you have you have that that ghost of the missions are still there, you know, <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being with me today. Yeah, it was it was very enjoyable, and uh, I hope we can do this again sometime soon. I look forward to it. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.